This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us for our first guest on this segment, Representative Mindy Dom, who is with us every month at this time. Representative, we're so pleased you can be with us again today. We really appreciate it. I'd like to begin by asking you about a topic we've been addressing on the show, and there's something called a home rule petition. A home rule petition being a law that a municipality needs the state to pass in order for the municipality to do what the municipality wants to do because the state oversees that particular area of the law. It's a little complicated. It's a little bit, well, not necessarily logical or self-evident. Um, I wish you would give us your view about the home rule petitions and then as, as, as part of your duties as a state representative, tell us what home rule petitions you have introduced into the legislature asking for passage on behalf of Amherst. I assume Amherst would be the biggest one. Uh, uh, home rule petitions you have introduced in this legislative sessions. Representative Minnie Dom, help us understand Thank this. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And good morning to you and Buzz. And um, happy almost three-day weekend to everybody who's listening. So, yes, home rules are a thing in Massachusetts when towns want to take action on issues in which the state has oversight of. They basically have to submit a home rule, which is like asking for permission from the legislature to do the thing that they want to do. And the permission is in the form of legislation, which is called the home rule um, legislation, kind of restoring the rule back to the town to be able to um, take action on a particular matter that might be under the state's purview. So Amherst has, I have filed two home rules on behalf of Amherst based on their request. I think that's the first thing that you have to know about home rules is that the towns make the request of their legislators to file these home rules. And it has to come from the town. So it needs to be passed by, in the case of Amherst, the city council as a resolution. Um, it comes to me in a, in a format that's like legislation. I then bring it to house council um, to have them review it for legality, to make sure that it could be filed as a piece of legislation. And then I file it like I file any other piece of legislation. And my view is, and I don't know if this is shared or not shared by others, but I assume that when a town passes a home rule and request to their legislator, the legislator really doesn't have any wiggle room. I have to file it. Um, it's not like I get to consider filing it, but I guess legislators could consider, you know, and, and decide not to file it. But I'm assuming that since I'm representing the town, if the town is making this request, then part of my responsibility is to follow through with not only filing it, but then tracking it, advocating for it, making sure the town knows where um, the bill is in the system, um, and then sort of working it like I would and organizing and advocating for it like any other piece of legislation. So Do, Amherst is interested. I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. no, no. I, I, I'd like to hear what the home rules are, and then I want to ask you a question about whether there is deference from representative to representative in terms of the home rules that you individually are asking for. But what are the ones that you've introduced for Amherst this legislative session? I think that's interesting. Yeah, so, so far, Amherst, I filed, I think, I believe, two home rules for Amherst, and they both deal with different aspects of state law that the legislature has authority over, which is kind of interesting. One is around local voting and elections, and the other is around a housing transfer fee, which in a sense is setting um, a revenue maker in the town 
that's like a tax. And so taxes are overseen by the state. So um, the two bills are one is around ranked choice voting to basically allow Amherst to pursue ranked choice voting in local elections. Um, as you may know, that's, you know, we don't have ranked choice voting at, at state level, although there are some municipalities that have had it. They call it different things. For example, Cambridge has had it for quite a while. Um, and Amherst, in their charter um, that they passed several years ago, said that they wanted to explore ranked choice voting and pursue it, and they established a commission, and the commission met, and they even kept to their they were just a little bit late on their timetable to issue their report because of COVID, but they did issue the report that basically said, here's some of the questions that we still need to answer. Here's some of the work and edu- you know, public information and education work we still need to do, but we want permission, in a sense, to move forward with ranked choice voting in local elections. And that's a refile. So I filed that originally last session when Amherst brought it to me. Um, it was advanced from the Committee on Elections, but extremely late in the session, like the last day of the session. So there was no room to legislate it, to to enact it. So that is a refile for this session. And so it has been filed. It's been directed to the Elections Committee. I'm looking forward to working with the Elections Committee this session to try to get an early hearing and an early decision on it so that we have a little bit more of what's sometimes referred to as a runway so that we can actually get it passed. Um, there are advocates in Amherst that are very eager to have ranked choice voting. There are advocates who are eager to have it, but also have indicated to me the need for a lot of public education and information because it's a new way of voting. Um, and so I think, you know, Amherst is ready for the state to say go. And then instead of going directly to go, I think that they're ready to get moving on um, kind of seeding the land so that voters know how to vote in ranked choice voting so that it can be successful. That's one home rule. Explain this to me, if you would, please. If Amherst wants ranked choice voting and the elected officials have uh, asked the state for permission for this, why isn't it sort of a presumption that the legislature would pass this? After all, um, unless it's uh, just overtly unconstitutional or illegal, which it's not, why wouldn't the state, as a matter of course, say, well, municipality A, B, C, or D, if you want this as an experiment, even if it's not really experimental now, but if you want to use this process for voting in your town, why would the state oppose it? Why isn't there some presumption that, well, local officials know what's best for their local municipality? Well, I think that's like the ultimate question with home rules, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, You could say that about the whole variety of home rules, that if municipalities are willing to um, experiment or implement new ways of doing things, why not just give them the permission to do it? And I might even support that kind of thinking, except that constitutionally in Massachusetts, that's not the way it works. If you need to, if a municipality wants to um, take action on an, in an area that the state has authority, they have to go for permission. So there are home rules like on other kinds of things that aren't quote unquote policy, like um, extending somebody's retirement age because maybe a town wants the person to work a year longer than they're allowed to. Um, transferring property is considered sometimes a home rule if it goes in from the town to a person or from the state to the town. Um, and so there's all these 
quote unquote non-controversial home rules that happen. But I think in answer to your question, what does happen is sometimes when these home rules raise issues that either could set precedent across the state and maybe the legislature is not um, in a position to do that just yet because the whole state hasn't weighed in on it. Or in the case of ranked choice voting, the state did weigh in on it like the year before we filed this home rule and rejected statewide ranked choice voting. Um, and so that might make the legislature a little concerned or hesitant to jump into it. I don't think that's the case necessarily with this bill. I think that last session, as you remember, um, we did a lot of sort of what's considered heavy lifting in the legislature around voting and voting laws. And that sucked up a lot of the uh, air and momentum for working on elections. Um, I'm actually, I don't see I don't see it that the legislature opposes this bill because they ultimately advanced it. And even though they advanced it on the final day of the session, which some people may say, well, that's not really advancing it. Well, actually, it's still advancing it. And that has merit in the building. So like in the state house, when something has been filed in the past and advanced and just didn't cross the finish line, that's a precedent that's actually respected. And because the next, the subsequent session looks at it as, well, the prior session reviewed it, vetted it, heard from people, had a public hearing on it, and they passed it. So the chances of it not passing the next session are less. Is that what advancing um, means? Yes, it means basically the committee, advancing it is the committee's had a public hearing, they've vetted the bill, maybe they've, you know, and that, that can take on lots of different things depending on who the chair is. Um, I think a lot of chairs really like, dive deep into it, research it, maybe call in stakeholders to have a conversation about it, the pros and the cons, really get a sense of the supporters and the opponents, and then make a decision. Should it advance? Should it go on into the legislative journey? Or should it be put to study, basically to sleep for a session? And this, you know, the ranked choice voting home rule advanced. It moved from the committee to House Ways and Means. It just did it with no time for any other action to happen. But that's a precedent that shows that it was supported. Is that clear? <laughs> <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> Technology failed us for the last couple of sent sentences, and uh, then you ended with, is that clear? I thought that was perfect. Uh -oh. <laughs> I was, it, was, it, was, it was really art in its own way. Uh, Representative Minnie Dom, uh, help, help me understand this, if you would. Uh, you have a second home rule petition about housing. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So um, there is a movement in the state to create housing transfer fees. Think of them like fair share amendments for housing. Um, in a lot of places, not in Amherst, but in a lot of places, they look at houses that are selling for millions of dollars, take Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, and they try to, and they are leveraging, they want to leverage a certain fee like 2% on houses that sell of over a certain amount. And in some places, that fee then is used for a variety of purposes, usually for more to build affordable housing. Um, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket are like very good examples of this because a lot of people who work on the islands can't afford to live on the islands because the housing is so expensive and the houses go for millions and tens of millions of dollars and so they've been leaders in trying to set a housing transfer fee of a certain percent on houses of over millions of dollars to generate some revenue 
so that their communities could build affordable housing. It sort of makes a lot of good sense, and it's a good way to raise revenue. And I think of it as a fair share amendment for housing specifically. Um, but in order to do that, because it's a tax in a sense, local communities have to go and, and um, ask the state for home rule. Now, I do want to say there's another way of doing this. And Senator Comerford is the leader on this, which is to create legislation that's known as enabling legislation. And this is enabling in a good way, um, enabling municipalities to have a choice, an option to do a certain thing. So, for example, in Senator Comerford's case, she has a bill. Um, she's the leader in the state on this that would enable communities to consider housing transfer fees without having to come for a home rule. So once you put in statute enabling legislation, then you don't have to do home rules anymore. If you put in a, a, a bill, if the bill passes that enables localities to have an option for home rules, then by statute they have the option and they can just do it or not do it, and they don't have to come and ask for permission. So right. It was an interest. It was. It was an interesting. I, I think uh, companion. Uh, companionship in the last legislative session, there was a bill introduced that would allow rank that would allow 16 year olds and older to vote in municipal elections in Northampton. There was another bill introduced that would allow any municipality in the Commonwealth to adopt a law to allow that. So exactly. it, it's it's kind of interesting the way that, and, and that's an example. The, the the legislature gives permission to municipalities to enact this kind of legislation as opposed right. to coming We're, one by actually, one. I, th I think the way to think about it, Bill, is not that they're giving permission, they're giving the option to municipalities. So, um, but, but you're right. In effect, what they're doing, the result is that every municipality has permission to do it without having to come back for a home rule. But the, I think the legislation is all about giving an option um, and not necessarily giving like blanket permission. It's just giving um, an option for folks. So Senator Comerford has the enabling legislation for a housing transfer fee, but there is still, you know, it hasn't passed, although I believe there's an advocacy day coming up for it. So Amherst this year, very recently passed at the town council level, uh, their own version of what a housing transfer fee would look like for our town. And because every town, you know, housing is a crisis in the state. And one of the big pieces of that crisis is production and how to afford it and how to how to finance it and how to fund it and how to make sure that it results in the kind of housing that people need in terms of affordability as well as availability. And so one way that Amherst wants to address this is with a housing transfer fee. And their housing transfer fee is kind of unique because um, it gives it doesn't quite set the fee because it wants the town to be able to be flexible with what that would mean given the market, but it does include non-owner um, occupied homes. And that's really important in a community like Amherst since a lot of our housing is being purchased by out of town, out of state investors as student housing um, and not, you know, kind of for people who live here. So that's how they wanted to address that piece of their housing crisis. The housing crisis is multifaceted, but that piece about housing being purchased by people who don't live here, squeezing out home, you know, the market for people, for families and other people who work in the town and creating a transfer fee. And so that was filed, I think, a couple of weeks ago. 
um, it will be heard by the Revenue Committee um, because it, in fact, creates a new form of a tax in the town. We, we are speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask her about a bill that will have a public hearing on Tuesday, which will require the free availability of menstrual products on public higher education campuses and bathrooms. It is the representative's bill. We'll hear more about this in just a minute. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver. How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder. Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things. Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 1015-1400-WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Mindy Don, the representative for the 3rd Hampshire District, which encompasses which municipalities, Representative? The entire town of Amherst, or the entire city known as the town of Amherst, because technically that's our name, and half of the town of Granby. Okay. I'd like to go to a bill that you are sponsoring in the legislature regarding uh, menstrual products on public higher education campuses. And... If you could also comment, since it is related, at least conceptually, on the first ever State House drive for menstrual products that's going on through June 2nd. So tell me about those. Tell me about the legislation first, if you would, please. Sure. Um, well, the legislation is really simple. It just requires public higher ed institutions to make menstrual products available on their campuses for free um, in all bathrooms. And it's, I mean, that's it. It's a very simple bill. Just like they make toilet paper available for free in all their bathrooms, it says we, now we want you to include menstrual products. And it's really about this notion of um, trying to address what's been called period poverty. 
you know, menstrual products are pretty expensive. And for people with limited resources, including students, that can also that can make it like a basic need that gets overlooked or that ends up putting pressure and having to diminish other basic needs, like choosing to buy tampons or pads rather than have dinner that night. Um, I remember when I was at the Amherst Survival Center, there was research that came out that said that for women who were experiencing homelessness, sometimes they would miss work because they didn't have the resources to be able to purchase menstrual supplies or they would miss classes and school. Um, and so we know that there is this financial impact from it. And so really trying to move the dial and move the, and it, like increase awareness that menstrual products are a basic need and they should be treated as such. And when you think about it as, wait a minute, we don't pay for toilet paper, dot, 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 then it becomes a little bit more clearer that it's like, yeah, this higher, public higher ed should be making this available. Now, UMass, it's interesting. The students there, there's a group on campus that really wanted to make these products available, um, and they petitioned the Student Government Association, and they ended up having a quote-unquote pilot program this past year that the students funded through their own student fees. I mean, all the credit to them, but when I heard about that, it was like, well, you really should. The students shouldn't have to be putting out student fees for this. This should be looked at as a supply that's just being provided by the institution. And since the institution is a state institution, that means we should be providing it. And so Tuesday is um, the first hearing of the Committee on Higher Education. And the bill, along with about 15 other bills, is being heard. And that means that we'll be testifying in support of it. If people want to send letters in support or testify themselves, they can. I think you have until today to register. You don't have to be there in person, because remember, this session, all hearings are hybrid. And so people from Western Mass can go online and participate, or they can submit um, a written uh, support letter for it. Or if they're opposed to it, they can write a, an opposition letter to it. Um, and as we talked about before, this is part of that legislative process. So the committee then will look at that bill, try to figure out, you know, they'll probably look at what's the expense to institutions, what do institutions think about it, what do students think about it, and then they'll make a decision to advance it or to put it to study. And we're hoping that they advance it. Representative Dom, I can't imagine anyone being opposed to the bill. I imagine that what this comes down to is who's going to pay for it. Whose budget does right. the, this come out of? So your thoughts about that? I think it comes out of their maintenance and custodial budgets, just like in their supply budgets, just like everything else does. And they'll have to figure out, I think, well, here's the thing. I don't think it's going to be that exorbitant for institutions because they can buy um, a quantity where they can get potentially a reduced price Institutions can join together and try to maximize and leverage their group sort of purchasing um, ability. I think what happens is people are fearful that um, students or consumers are going to, quote, unquote, take advantage of it. You know, take more than one, take five, take six. And I think the premise here is people will only take it if they need it and they can't afford it um, or they don't have one. Um, but if you can't really take advantage of a basic need because if you need it and you need that much of it, then that's what your need is. Um, and I'm not worried about that because I don't think – I think in the pilot program that UMass students were doing, they didn't see people taking advantage of it and taking, you know, ton, you know swiping like 100 tampons and sticking them in their backpacks. Um, people took what they needed. And I think it indicates 
to the students and to people who are using the facilities that we see you. We understand that this is um, not only a physical and a medical need, but it also represents financial need. And in this case, you know, when people wear, um, for example, if a person is using a tampon and they don't have enough money for another tampon or they have to stretch out how many tampons they use because they're expensive, they may actually wear that tampon for longer than it's medically indicated, and that becomes a medical problem. And so it's um, a health need, a health basic need that could result in a medical issue. Last question for you on this, Representative. Is this bill, if it passes, will it be applicable to all institutions of higher education, the state university and the colleges, or now the yes, state university public. system and the, and the, uh, as well as the community colleges? Yes, all public higher ed. So that's community colleges, state colleges, state universities, and the UMass system. There's like 29 campuses and UMass Medical. So um, it's all 29 campuses. That's a lot of um, consumer power, you know what I'm saying, to leverage uh, a lower price for their students. And the title for this bill, if uh, someone would I like think to... It's, it's, I think it's something like an act to uh, provide uh, menstrual products on public higher ed campuses. <laughs> it's not very um, sexy, but it's very clear. It is, which is what counts. It's the H1255. Thank you so much. Representative Mindy Dom, we really appreciate your time with us every month. We appreciate your leadership. Good luck in your hearing on your bill on Tuesday. Thank you, Bill, so much, and good to speak to you. Thanks, Buzz. Have a great weekend. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One person is dead after being struck by a train in Westfield last night. Westfield police were investigating near the train tracks around the areas of Elm and Pocasic Street in downtown Westfield around 9 p.m. Several streets were closed during the investigation. Police have confirmed that a pedestrian was killed after she was hit by the train, but have not identified the victim. Northampton officials are looking for a new vendor to run Valley Bike after the main provider defaulted on its contract. Carolyn Mish, Northampton's Director of Planning and Sustainability, says they are planning to have a competitive process to select a partner with more financial stability after the former provider, Bewigan Technologies of Canada, initiated bankruptcy proceedings. The regional bike share program has stations throughout the Pioneer Valley, which will most likely remain grounded through next spring unless a short-term vendor can be found. The East Hampton School Committee will choose two new members by the end of the month. Nine residents have applied for the position. The new members will assist in making the final decision on interim superintendent and will be chosen during a May 31st meeting at 6 p.m. using sequential ranked choice voting. The meet and greet series for the superintendent position wrapped up last night and interviews will take place June 3rd through the 5th with a decision possible on June 12th. The new Greenfield Skate Park is opening today, just in time for Memorial Day weekend. Greenfield Recreation Department says today will be a soft opening, with construction continuing for the next few weeks. A formal grand opening is scheduled for Wednesday, June 21st, on National Go Skateboarding Day. Plenty of sunshine today, a light breeze and a high of 70 to 74. Mostly clear this evening with evening temperatures in the 60s and 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Cool start tomorrow, but a mostly sunny and mild day, a high of 76 to 80. Mostly sunny and low 80s on Sunday and Monday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El presidente de Estados Unidos, Joe Biden, y el principal republicano del Congreso, Kevin McCarthy, parecían estar acercándose el jueves a un acuerdo para reducir el gasto y aumentar el techo de deuda del gobierno de 31.4 billones de dólares, con poco tiempo libre para evitar el riesgo de incumplimiento. El acuerdo especificaría la cantidad total que el gobierno podría gastar en programas discrecionales como vivienda y educación, pero no lo dividiría en categorías individuales. Las dos partes se reunieron virtualmente el jueves, dijo la Casa Blanca. El representante Garrett Graves, principal negociador republicano, dijo a los periodistas el jueves por la noche que las conversaciones continuarían durante la noche. Cualquier acuerdo tendrá que ser aprobado por la Cámara de Representantes controlada por los republicanos y el Senado controlado por los demócratas. La Cámara levantó la sesión el jueves por la tarde para un descanso de una semana y el Senado no está en sesión. Se les ha dicho a los legisladores que estén listos para volver a votar si se llega a un acuerdo. En otras informaciones, el fundador del grupo extremista Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, fue sentenciado el jueves a 18 años de prisión por orquestar un complot de una semana que culminó con el ataque de sus seguidores al Capitolio de los Estados Unidos en un intento por mantener al presidente Joe Biden fuera de la Casa Blanca después de ganar las elecciones de 2020. Rhodes, de 58 años, es la primera persona condenada por conspiración sediciosa en el ataque del 6 de enero de 2021 para recibir su castigo y su sentencia es la más larga dictada hasta ahora en los cientos de casos de disturbios en el Capitolio. Por primera vez en un caso del 6 de enero, el juez acordó con el Departamento de Justicia que las acciones de Rhodes deberían castigarse como terrorismo, lo que aumenta la sentencia recomendada según las pautas federales. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is our weekly segment with Max Page, Your State You. Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and he has with him and us today a very special guest to talk about a very important topic. Max Page, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Bill. Yes, I am very glad to have one of our 115,000 members, but a very special member, Brenda Dunn, who's a fifth grade uh, reading specialist teacher in Springfield and also the vice president of one of our largest uh, K-12 locals, the Springfield Education Association. And I thought um, we had a, a hearty debate at our, at our um, annual meeting that was in Springfield last month. And I really wanted to lift up the work that that Brenda does and talk about this issue of reading and how we teach reading. This this debate is roiling around the country. So Brenda Dunn, welcome on the show. Thank you, Max. Thank you all. So Brenda, just tell us a little about what, what you do on this crucial, crucial skill for every single student, which is learning, as you put it, how not only to how to read, but how to love reading. Yes. So what I do is I, um, I consider myself a book whisperer. I didn't make up that term. Uh, Don, Donald and Miller did. But um, so I think of my job in fifth grade it, to get the kids to love to read, to find out who they are as readers and um, to figure out what they love to do. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but you know, one of them is most of the vocabulary that children um, develop is not taught directly if they teach it to themselves through reading. So 
um, a teacher can only probably cover a couple hundred vocabulary words in a year and they need to have thousands every year. So, um, so those actually get taught through vo vocabulary. But um, I often think too that I want one of, the, one of my jobs is also so they'll be lifelong learners. And, um, you know, by learning about uh, other people, other places, other opinions, they are more likely to be more curious and want to continue learning and reading in the future. So, but in order to, for me to be able to do that, I have, I call it ACT. They need um, the access to lots of literature. They need choice, tremendous choice, and they need time. And the time has, I have to devote the time uh, it's like a, a sacred time in our classroom when we do reading because uh, it's the most important thing they do all day. So that's that's my perspective. Great. So Brenda, all right, I, I, am, I heard the words um, love of reading, lifelong learners, sacred, and I agree with all of that 100%. So now I'm going to like uh, put on my devil's hat, devil's advocate hat. So Brenda Dunn, why aren't you doing um, phonics? following the science of reading, and that's proved that's the way it works. This is the debate roiling right now, that there's a clear way to teach it, and this is the way. Why don't we, um, what do you think about that debate, and what do you think of the argument that there's a certain way to teach reading, and that's the way every teacher should do it, or else they're depriving their kids of the, the best methods for learning how to read? Well, kids will learn in uh, lots of different ways. Like, say, I, and maybe you learned, uh, through like whole language. I learned a lot of sight words. That's how I learned to read. Uh, of course, that would have missed other kids, right, who don't learn to read that way. There's other uh, kids who really um, need to be exposed to phonics, definitely, for sure. That That is, there is nothing wrong with phonics and any teacher, any reading teacher isn't teaching phonics is also is doing the wrong thing. But it's not just phonics. And there's my concern, because my, my concern is if it's only basically phonics, and I think many people will interpret this new the science of reading that way, then uh, reading will become boring, and children won't want to read. They may be able to read, but they won't be they won't want to. Could you take a step Brenda, back? I'm going to interrupt for one second. Sure. Because I, I just want to make sure listeners all know what phonics is. So maybe just ex oh, sure. explain that. And we're talking to Brenda Dunn from uh, a reading teacher in Springfield, just so everyone knows what you're talking about. So there's, you know, the phonics is basically that word, that sounds have uh, meaning, are attached to uh, letters, right? So there's, um, and knowing how to uh, sound out a word and knowing the rules of English, right? Um, so that's basically what it is. So it like that A makes uh, basically two sounds, um, except it like the A and A. And um, so that's phonics. And then there's blends and um, schwas and there's a lot of other things um, that they need to know, right? So it's about decoding words. That's what phonics is. As Great. opposed to looking at a collection of letters and knowing that that word means something or refers to an object or an action, is that the difference? Yes. That's kind of the difference, right? Phonics is not necessarily knowing what the word means, right? So, um, uh, so decoding a word would be really just being able to sound, make it sounds, but not, not 
it doesn't really have anything to understand, uh, anything to do with its meaning. So, um, so those things have to be taught together, right? It's not, it's not just one or the other. So we're, we're talking to Brenda Dunn, who's a, a reading teacher in Springfield and the vice president of the Springfield Education Association. So I just uh, um, asked this devil's advocate question about phonics, but I'm going to make, ask an even harder question, Brenda, which is I want you to, to brag for a moment. And here's what I mean, is that multiple people have said the best reading teacher in the city of Springfield, one of our largest cities, mm -hmm. is Brenda Dunn. So, I, you know, I know it's really hard for you to do, but what is it you think that makes you so effective? Because clearly you are saying there is not just one camp phonics or, or you know, a, another approach, but that there's, there's something more that's going on there. So what do you think, what's your approach that has been so effective? Well, um, one thing is like they do, well, one of the things I do is like I do have uh, a, uh, a tremendous classroom library, right? So I have a library, I add, you know, constantly adding to it as I get to know the kids, I, what they're interested in, I, I add more books uh, according to what they're interested in. They, um, they do book studies together, they do, they, the kids have book clubs, we read together, I read to them. Uh, we have, one of the things we have is uh, we call it 40 book challenge and um, most of the kids, you know, when I first tell them that in the beginning of the year that we're, I want you to challenge yourself to f see if you could read 40 books, they kind of, they usually kind of freak out, right? Because that sounds like an enormous number. But almost everybody ends up getting there, right? But honestly, the, but the truth is, and I tell them this, like if you read no books last year, or one book last year, and you read, you know, 15 books this year, you have, that's a tremendous success, right? But I have kids who've read, um, I have one girl who's read 220 books last time she told me this year because she made a commitment to reading. And um, I, and every child says that they've read more than they've ever read in their life. And they talk about their reading and they can identify all this, the structures and plot elements and they know how to discuss literature. So I think that's probably the success is also like I said that I you know it, we call it sacred time that when we read and we um, um, oh sorry and we want to <laughs> so and we devote like 30 minutes a day just to independent reading it's all their choice I want them to relax I want them to inform themselves or um, or entertain themselves and I, my understanding is that um the more kids read, like one of the most fundamental um, measures or causes of students to be able to read better and learn more generally is reading more. And yes. it sounds like that's a centerpiece is you simply want to get students opening books, reading through them and, and developing that sense that they are readers and learners. That they are readers, that they see themselves as readers. And then as they're doing that, I can see, I, I can, you know, in conferences and in book clubs, I can see where um, the problems might be arising. It's not that I don't ever teach, you know, phonics, of course I do, but, um, but it's not uh, systematic to everyone in the class, right? Only specifically what the, the particular groups of students need, right? To, to expose someone who's like there's I call underground readers the kids who want just want to read and have the teacher leave them alone to have to expose those kids who are already well on their way 
to some of those fundamentals can make them hate the reading class. And I have no intention of getting in their way. Can I just go back so, for one second to make sure I understand it? With regard to phonics, a, a, a student comes up to you in your fifth grade class, Brenda Dunn, and says, I don't know this word. Phonics is helping them to sound it out as opposed to some other approach to the word. Is that right? Yes, there would be. I mean, there's really only a couple ways to um, uh, know what words are, either basically by memorizing them, right, or by decoding them. And decoding is, is the, what the sounds are. Yes, okay. right. And then sort of, and sometimes um, uh, identifying, well, no, that would be meaning, but identifying the pieces, of, the morphemes, which are the pieces of meaning in words. And I will, I want to lift up that uh, in a week uh, or a week and a half on June 6th, there is going to be a hearing of the Education Committee and they are um, going to be hearing at least they're hearing a number of bills, but including one that's called an act to promote high quality comprehensive literary literacy instruction in all Massachusetts schools. And actually at the annual meeting in Springfield this past um, April, we actually voted to stand against that because it does seem like it is a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think what you've just shown us, Brenda Dunn, one of the, one of the great reading teachers, is that that notion that there is one-size-fits-all was not only uh, misguided, but it actually might undermine sort of budding readers, the love of reading. I think you said it perfectly, which is that you want to promote the ability to read, but also asking how do we make how do we make young readers lifelong readers? And those are not identical goals. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, Brenda, for being on today. I'm sure we'll have you back. This is an ongoing uh, debate and you are, are leading it in your schools. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Brenda Dunn. Thank you, Max Page. Yeah, This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. This week's Shock Tuesday is Tavern on the Hill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Tavern on the Hill releases gift certificates for their restaurant on Mount Tom. Tavern on the Hill, barbecue done slow over native oak, brisket, ribs, and pulled pork, plus Tavern's signature salmon, pumpkin tortillaki, and big deck with a view of the Berkshire foothills. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Tavern on the Hill on Mount Tom, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. To the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th. Be a new first-time 
prime mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIA. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 4:15. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. And this is Art Beat with Donna Belcasis, who has with her and us today, well, a person known to our listeners because he was with us recently, and I'm so excited to have him back, really, Chris Ferry, because I want to know more about what is happening in the art scene and the film scene in East Hampton, and it's very exciting. So, let me turn the microphone over to you, Donna Belcasis. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Yes, Chris Ferry is the founder and uh, coordinator of the East Hampton Film Festival. And if you are a cinephile, you are probably plugged into all the screenings that happened this month from the 12th and through last night, I believe, was the last screening. So, um, Chris, I want to know how it went and what were the types of films you were showing in case people missed it? so they could look forward to possibly the next one. Yeah, thank you. Um, it, it was a little bit of everything. It went fantastic. Um, last night we had a documentary with uh, guest panelist Larry Hot. I think that went really well. Um, tonight we've got a networking event a party just to sort of celebrate that, uh, you know, if you miss the screenings, come out and meet some of the other people in the local filmmaking community. It's at the Marigold Theater at six o'clock. Um, so who are some of the filmmakers who are here in the Valley? Oh, boy. Uh, it's a, a list as long as your arm. It's an eyebrow-raising <laughs> list. Um, so we we uh, Honestly, there, there are too many to go through, but they're on the website if you want to go to EastHamptonFilmFestival.com and, and look mm -hmm. up and see who you might know. Um, one of the things that really surprised me about doing this, and this is the second year I've done it, is how you know energized and thriving the independent filmmaking community is in western massachusetts i knew people were making movies but i had no idea that that there were so many and that the quality would be so good it's it's really amazing do i understand correctly that all of the films shown at the east hampton film festival are by local filmmakers well that's that's not true uh i try and program i try and program half and half so i try and half local and then half the rest of the country and international right as far as turkey this year right that's right yeah that's pretty awesome and are all the films shown at the same venue no they're all over town uh east hampton media and new city brewery and abandoned building brewery and the marigold theater i mean i, I do try and celebrate the local business scene as well and i love a draft house experience yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's so what's your connection with the Marigold Theater aside from having it as a venue? Because that's where the free event is tonight. Well, I mean, I, I Glenn uh, Alper, who is the guy who runs that now, is 
also very committed to boosting community stuff and he's just a, a wonderful guy and a generous guy and i asked him can we do it there because it's such a beautiful venue and it is an old theater uh mm -hmm. and he said sure so there's a band there tonight but we're gonna get in there before the the band starts and nice should be fun now, if you haven't been to the Marigold Theater, it's at 84 Cottage Street, and it's a beautiful venue, just like Chris was saying. And, you know, do you have a sense of which filmmakers will be there tonight in case people want to connect? Um, hopefully all of them. I, I just got a ding from Wally who says he can't make it. He's got a family, uh, you know, a family conflict tonight. But, you know, hopefully uh, Melissa Dimitris and... I, I hope to see everybody. I, I've really made a lot of friends uh, through doing this, and uh, this should be fun. Now, you've also programmed some workshops this year. Tell us about that and the possible future of having more workshops at the East Hampton Film Festival. Yeah, thank you. Um, so one of the things I've realized in doing this twice now is that I really want it to be more than just a bunch of screenings. I want it to be something that kind of fosters and community builds uh, with the, you know, filmmaking in the area. So the workshops, we're just getting our feet wet this year, but we, we had a screenwriting workshop that I think went really well, where participants started with nothing. And in six weeks, we ended with a staged reading of a short film they each had written that I think you could produce. Like, I was just so amazed with the the quality of the scripts that they came up with in so short a time six so, weeks that's insane i know yeah i know and <laughs> i try and keep those affordable and i i'm trying to make sure that we have classes that people would be excited to take and i'm working on it chris ferry mm -hmm. this is buzz okay. look for example what were some of the workshops that you had well we, there were just three one was a documentary workshop by a finnish filmmaker named uh, auntie hasa and one was uh, a screenwriting workshop by wally marzano lesnevich and one was uh, the art of the interview by patricia montoya i mean those are fantastic workshops and there aren't not that i'm aware of any places around here that offer those types of um events so good on you for for giving people the opportunity to, to take those um, locally. Chris, Chris Ferry, we have two questions from you from the studio here. I'd like to know first, are you a filmmaker or are you just someone who loves film? You're the founder of the East Hampton Film Festival. Give us a 30-second synopsis. How'd that come about? I am. I am a filmmaker, although I haven't really done it in a long time since I had kids. Although I'm in the middle of production of a short horror film we're shooting here in Eastworks and other locations that we're hoping to finish in August. So I'm wading back into that. <laughs> and my, well, question, my you... question, Chris Ferry, is are films juried? That is, if people submit, do you get many more submissions than you accept? Yeah, I got almost 100 submissions this year and I showed 30. So I try Whoa. and be pretty exacting in terms of, um, you know, making sure it's it's high quality stuff. And uh, are you the soldier? Yeah, a lot of films. Are you the only yeah, person? I am, I am the soldier. I do. I have some volunteers that help here and there, but I'm the only one that watches all of the films so far. So far. <laughs> <laughs> well, will you give us another chance to see some of these films later on this year? You think? Yeah, I think so. Last year I did it in, I did a couple of screenings in autumn, you know, in October, um, sort of a best of the fest and a horror screening around uh, Halloween. So I don't know exactly what I'm going to do yet, but I, but I think so. That's fun to do in the autumn. 
Absolutely. I mean, I love that there is a thriving film community, filmmaking community in the area, and you're totally tapped into that. And if you out in the public would like to rub elbows with these filmmakers and possibly do some networking and, you know, meeting the folks behind the scenes, there's a great opportunity tonight. It's a free event. It's at Miracle Theater. It's run by East Hampton Film Festival. Chris Ferry here is from EFF. And uh, you want more information, you can go to EastHamptonFilmFestival.com. Chris, I really appreciate you being on the show today. And I look forward to seeing more film in the area. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And just to be clear, one need not be from East Hampton to participate or to come to the workshop. Is that right? That's 100% correct. Please come. <laughs> and it's free. <laughs> okay, Bill, you can go. And okay, what time? <laughs> 6 p.m. Marigold Theater in East Hampton. We leave it there. Donabel Cassis, thank you very, very much, as always, for being such interesting and I think just distinguished guests on Artbeat. And Chris Ferry, thank you for thank you for founding and running the East Hampton Film Festival. We are all in your debt. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. The beat goes on. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5-1400. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP North 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And Bill, we have a couple of very special guests um, uh, under really um, unfortunate circumstances here in studio with us. About, uh, I'd say, a year and a half ago, they were last in studio with us when they were announcing a pretty extraordinary project that they were engaged in, which was the development of the Bombix Center for Arts and Equity at the historic 130 Pine Street Theater in Florence, Massachusetts. This historic building uh, was involved in anti-slavery and uh, uh, gender equity and um, uh, religious freedom activities back in the 19th century, mid-19th century, and here it was once again becoming um, not just a, ch a location of a church and a synagogue and a daycare center, but also a performing arts venue, which uh, really captivated everyone's imagination. I was there for the opening act, I think, which was Dee Dee Bridgewater and yes. Bill Charlap. It was yep. a great show and a great location. 
and with us to talk about um, the travails of the Bombeck Center for Arts and Equity is Cassandra Holden and um, Kyle Homestead. Thank you both for being with us. Let me Thank start you. with you, Cassandra. You, um, well, what is going <laughs> on? We've been reading about in the paper. There's a, a tumult over the absence of a sprinkler system and the designation, uh, even though no alcohol has ever been sold at this venue as a nightclub, and therefore the absence of a sprinkler system somehow is threatening your very existence. Do I have that right? You do have that right. So I think part of the challenge in this project is that it is an unusual collaboration between multiple partners. Bombix is a nonprofit entity, and we manage the property there. We don't own it yet. We've structured a multi-year agreement with the congregation to allow us time to raise the funds and complete the necessary work in the building to bring it up to code, to just, you know, make it a 21st century building and not a 19th century building. And who actually owns it? So the Florence Congregational Church still owns that building. And um, as that congregation was getting older and smaller, you know, they were in a difficult spot financially. It's a lot for that small group to maintain the building. Um, So we swept in and, you know, put together this partnership that would allow them to stay in place and continue to worship there, that would allow the Beta Hava congregation to remain in place and continue to worship there, and for the Cloverdale Preschool, which has been there since the mid-50s, to remain on site. Um, it's, you know, it we don't, we don't function like a lot of other churches. We have all these different arts activities going on. The Young at Heart rehearses with us. We have uh, Tycho drummers. We have the Bombix Brass. We have the Wild Women of Wednesday, and they're another senior vocal ensemble. So we really, in many ways, function like a performing arts center or a community center. We have all these activities. And I think as this recent, you know, kerfuffle uh, has evolved, you know, with the city and the fire department, part of what's challenging in all of this is that we don't fit neatly into any designation, right? There isn't another project like this that you could compare it compare us to. And so I think as people are looking at this, it's easy to pick it apart and say, oh, you're a nightclub. Oh, you're this thing. When in fact, we're not a nightclub. Like we do all these different things and that sets us apart. And I do want to just point out that I did invite and speak to the fire chief, John Davin, invited him to be here and to explain why he thinks it's a nightclub and et cetera. And he um, told me very nicely that he wishes he could, but that he was told by the mayor's office that all future communications about this has to go through the mayor's office. And so he declined our invitation. Kyle, um, why do you think um, that after all these years, 50 years for the daycare center, um, these faith-based congregations um, have been operating in this without a sprinkler system? Can you explain to us why the ostensible reason why all of a sudden the absence of a sprinkler system is threatening your very existence. Well, so I think it's important to understand that when we began this project, we did a full code review to understand what would have to happen in this building. And there are events like uh, like new ownership of the property, major renovations, for example, that trigger code compliance, even for churches. If a, if a new church was to uh, come in and, and build a property today, they would have to comply with modern sprinkler law. So, you know, the goal is, is to protect everybody. So when we set out on this project, we knew that sprinklers and all kinds of other things related to accessibility, fire safety, and so on were, were to be part of this project. And we had planned it out um, and thought we were all in agreement about a phased approach to do that. Because we all meaning? 
uh, working with the city and working with building and planning, uh, because of course we're not the experts, and and we really looked to our allies uh, in the city to help support us laying out a, a path to get there. Because this is uh, this is a small nonprofit putting together this project. It's not somebody coming in with a lot of investment dollars uh, to, you know, put a, put a few million dollars into a, a building before it can begin to have use. So we always knew that sprinklers were going to be part of the equation here, and and had planned. In fact, we had sprinklers quoted uh, at the onset of this project, probably before we saw you, you know, a year and a half ago. Um, so this this sudden change and and uh, assessment is is what has been a real surprise to us because we thought we were all on the same page about this. Um, Cassandra Holden, I, let me just acknowledge this is difficult. You are trying to work with the city, and at the same time, profoundly disagree with what the city is doing. Your very existence is a performing arts venue, which has become. Uh, an iconic performing arts venue. People who have been there, people who look at the events that you have scheduled, the per, you know the performers that are scheduled really love it. So here you are um, trying to make sure that you leave the avenues of communication open and at the same time express your disappointment that this is going on. So that must be a difficult line to walk. It is a difficult, it's a difficult spot to be in. And I think that, um, again, I come back to the project is unusual. I think that, you know, folks, um, maybe what people don't understand is that the revenue that Bombix generates is actually through rentals. So we don't make money on tickets. We make money when presenters like DSP or, you know, Laudable or someone else come in and use the space. So as this, you know, as these performances, which have really, you know, been a very important part of our identity go away, we lose that revenue. And more importantly, we also lose the ability to fundraise in the way that we have in the past, because it's that programming that has enabled us to secure grant funds, you know, locally, nationally, on the state level. Um, you know, the so it's, it's very complicated, like this does threaten our very survival. And, you know, it also represents a serious economic loss for the other presenters, artists, you know, everybody who's trying to use the space and do this. So Kyle or Cassandra, either one, can you go back to something you were just talking about that I still don't understand? There are any number of groups that use this space. There's the church, there's the synagogue, there's the daycare center, there's there are innumerable uses for this space. What I don't understand is the claim that if there's a fire hazard, if you're having a performance, why isn't there a fire hazard for everybody else who uses the space? Well, that's really a mystery to us. And, and it, it sort of defies logic, but I think it comes down to that there is a specific uh, you know, in the fire code, it specifically addresses requirements related to the nightclub designation. And we have been designated as a nightclub. And this is this is also a mystery to us. As Wait a minute. Do you serve alcohol like a nightclub does? No. So, it, so it's our understanding, actually, that the whole nightclub designation, uh, which is a use and occupancy designation, is predicated on the idea that alcohol is served. Bombix does not have a liquor license uh, does not intend to have a liquor license. Have you ever served alcohol? So the, we have had uh, one-day permits are pulled with the city that goes through the licensing board and the mayor's office. So just like any other rental venue, 
for example, this year, this calendar year, there have been six occasions in which alcohol has been served under these one-day permits in the building. Three of them are private functions, like you know, bar mitzvahs and weddings and things like that. And three of them are, are not where Bombix even pulls the license, but uh, you know, we have local breweries that will come in on some of these shows. So Bombix has never generated revenue, nor has Bombix ever actually pulled a license to serve alcohol. And out of all the events that have happened under the Bombix roof this year, you know, there are six times that that a, that a one-day permit has been pulled. So this is, and I think this has probably been very misunderstood. Well, explain that just a little bit more, if you would, please. If there have only been six events, and it's the six events where there were alcohol served uh, because someone else had a license, a wedding, or a bar mitzvah, or what have you, um, if is that the problem? If you said, okay, we won't have those uh, uh, those six events, there will be... Uh, You'll you'll let us go on and won't won't put us through all of this. We we have offered uh, to, we, to we offered that compromise as well as other compromises to you know find a path forward that pulled us out of this nightclub designation. Um, we we seem to be stuck there until we can you know work something out. And and this the the, the criteria in this designation. If you were to apply the same criteria, you know, just about every church, every concert dance, every, uh, you know, you name it, VFW, Elks Club, Arts Center, you know, that same criteria that's being applied to us would really designate uh, every single one of those establishments well, uh, as a nightclub. It leads to the question, why is it being applied to Bombix? In your view, I mean, I know you don't have the answer, you're not a decision maker here, but what's your impression of why the Bombix Center for Arts and Equity being targeted for the absence of a sprinkler system. I, I, I wish we knew, and I wish that we had uh, an understanding. I wish any of this made sense, and it, and it really doesn't, much like you just asked the question, like, how come we can, we can have an event that is speaking or, say, a panel discussion with, at full capacity with the public coming, paying for a ticket, sitting in the same pews, uh, the church congregation can have an event. They can have music as as part of their their service, as they do. Um, but that is that is okay. That is permitted, and uh, and assuming that that's agreed that it's safe. But to to have the For same the same amount of time, the same two and a half hour sure, period. Sure, but we but anything that resembles music. Last last weekend, in fact, we had uh, uh, Valley Classical Concerts is is one of the renters who comes into Bombix with some frequency. They've been a fantastic partner. They had a classical concert at four p.m. in the afternoon. And um, and we had to cancel uh, that concert or take it away from Bombix. They took it and presented it at another church in town that also doesn't have sprinklers. Cassandra Holden, I don't know if you can answer this question. Is this a problem that's bigger than just Bombix? That is, is there some statewide sort of uh, trend about sprinkler systems or anything like that going on that you know of? Well, I think that the challenge with this particular piece of regulation is that it was developed 20 years ago in response to the nightclub fire. And the way that, it, you know, I think the public grief and, you know, sentiment in response to that that particular tragedy led to some, you know, very broadly written, you know, creatively interpreted regulation that can be applied, you know, unevenly to different types of facilities um, it, it, I, I think it's also just that, that what what is happening and what is a challenge 
I think throughout the state, and, and not just in Massachusetts, certainly, is that there are many churches that um, are, are, are empty, are not being used. They're amazing properties. They have great potential. And I think communities all over the Commonwealth are trying to figure out how to be able to repurpose these. And, and as, as if you start to dig into zoning regulations and so on, like you'll see that it's been written into um, uh, uh, regulations in a lot of different areas to, to create pathways to reuse these buildings so that they're not just being torn down, they're not staying vacant. And, you know, again, Bombex is a really unique uh, example of, of how you can repurpose a church property. And, and to that degree, it's even been, like, this has been nationally recognized um, by the, by the uh, congregational church uh, on a national level as, as a model to really hold up. Um, so, you know, there are certainly churches and other communities that are trying to be repurposed and, and running into various stumbling blocks because Bill, it's I'm not unusual. from Northampton. How many empty churches are there now, uh, unused churches in Northampton? There's a couple at least. Well, we, we, have, an, we have an answer here from Cassandra. I believe there are half a dozen that are um, either, you know, currently not in use or, you know, are very minimally used and really are, you know, the city is looking at them as opportunities for redevelopment and reinvigorating the community. Let's go back to this question uh, that we were discussing earlier, which is the renovation of the building and the repurposing of the building. And what I also don't understand is whether the city is saying to you that it is the new construction that is uh, that is initiating this requirement for a sprinkler system. And if that's not it, then how is Bombex different from all of the other churches, as Buzz just mentioned, where there are musical performances frequently? So, okay, several things to unpack in that. Um, so I the... Okay, there are sort of three. There are three particular instances in which um, a church property like this, a, tr a change of use, would be triggered, and we would be considered something different. Um, one of those is the change of ownership. Um, the other would be major construction, and the work that we've done in the building to date doesn't really fall into that category. Um, so again, I think what's challenging in this particular project is there are lots of things going on, and you know we have this this public programming that's getting a lot of attention. That's a small fraction of what's happening in the building, but it is the you know the large percentage of what the public sees. And you know we the the, the other piece of this that's been very difficult is that you know Officer Curtin actually showed up you know, at the beginning all of this in response to a noise complaint from our neighbors, right? So this programming, again, while it's a small fraction of what's been going on, gets a lot of attention and has received negative attention from the folks in the neighborhood. We are uh, here in studio with Kyle Homestead and with Cassandra Holden. They are the founders of and they are management of um, the Bombix uh, Center for Arts and Equity. We're going to be back and talk more about this, I, admittedly, perplexing situation that Bombix is facing with respect to being permitted to continue as a performing arts venue right after this.
more Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1,100 and 1240 WHMP. A nice looking lawn. You can do it. Rent a de thatcher, aerator, and an overseeder. Get the garden planted. Rent a rototiller, a flower bed edger. Hi, it's Jim from TJ's Rental. Renting the right tools and equipment makes your project a breeze. We'll show you how to use them, and you'll love the results. Rent a leaf blower, a chipper, and a stump grinder. What projects do you want to tackle? Rent the tools and equipment from TJ's in Hadley and South Hadley. I'm ready to help you. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with the uh, founders and uh, staff uh, management of the Bombeck Center for Arts and Equity about the city of Northampton's uh, order that they suspend all uh, performing arts at the location 130 Pine Street, which is a church of longstanding that has an incredible historic background and which does not have a sprinkler system which is a very costly thing to install. So, Cassandra Halden, um, I guess the real question is, are you, is your existence as a venue really threatened by this order? Yeah, I mean, this is a compound problem because Bombex has taken over management of the property, right? So if we as an organization fail... The ownership of the property, you know, still rests with the FCC, who's unable to manage it. So FCC, Florence Congregational Church. So, you know, then the management of the property reverts back to them. They're not able to do that. They put the property up for sale. The church dissolves. The synagogue has to go somewhere else. And the little preschool has no home. That's where we're at. Like, you know, the the loss of revenue for Bombex by not offering this art arts programming is is critical like you know maybe we can coast along for a couple of months and then then it's over then the lights are off 
you know, for our presenters, this means that they have to immediately scramble and relocate their programming somewhere else. I just want to say again that Bombix does not generate revenue through ticket sales. We generate revenue through rentals. So every concert you see, that represents, you know, dollars in, you know, dollars to Bombix that help us to upgrade this building. So the other piece of this is really terrifying is that with our doors closed to this kinds of programming, how are we going to fundraise to do this? Like, we're not generating the revenue to do the work that we already committed to do. How large is the staff at Bombix? I am the only employee, and I am a volunteer. Mm-hmm. So, um, Kyle Homestead, um, what should listeners, what can listeners do, if anything, if they wish to support Bombix uh, in its in this tense uh, relationship with the city of Northampton right now? Well... That's a really good question, and um, and you know we 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 have been searching for for the answer to that uh, because uh, we we wish that all you know there's an incredible amount of goodwill and support. Um, and there are uh, there are t- three things people can do. First of all, you can donate to Bombix. You can drop a check in the mail, or you can um, you know send us a little something through PayPal. That's PayPal.me/slash Bombix B O M B Y X eighteen sixty one. More importantly, like you can buy tickets to the programming that's on the calendar this weekend. Come support us, support the artists, support the presenters who are putting this together. Like that's how we survive. You know, we we have to make it. We have to pull through. Could you explain, please, this aspect? It's been my understanding and impression that the city itself has been an enthusiastic supporter of Bombex up to this point. And then all of a sudden, the rug is pulled out. I don't get that. Can you help me understand? I, I don't think we understand either, except to say that like we have really enjoyed um, a, a, a very close working relationship with the city who, you know, every, everybody in the city we've worked with has been an incredible ally to date and has really actually enabled this to happen and, and even participated in the sort of broader development and visibility of, of this idea. So we, we have felt very fortunate um, to, to have the support of, of the individuals and the city at large, um, right now, like you know, we're not in politics, and uh, and and we understand this is complicated for everybody. It's it's confusing to us, and uh, and we're just trying to find a path forward. Do either of you have any concern about a fire in that building when there is a crowd? No, uh, we 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 wouldn't be operating in the building if we felt like it was a, a fire risk, and. Uh, you know, of course, we have we do have a fire alarm system, and uh, but the you know it's and again, we we can have a full capacity event that's speaking. We can't put a classical quartet on stage, so there's this real sort of logical disconnect that is very hard for us and for our supporters to understand. Um, but this is the situation we in find other words, ourselves you in. The same a number of people in the building listening to someone speak. That's correct as you would have listening to someone play music. Sure. And, yes. and, and we can have the same number of people in the building uh, listening to music at a, at a church service, um, but zero people in the building listening uh, you, to a concert. If you could, Kyle uh, Homestead, if, if tomorrow somebody said, we're willing to put in a sprinkler system, Cassandra said earlier it would take a very long time to get it installed. Why is that? Well, first of all, we all know that uh, you know contractors and supply chains are, uh, are are difficult. But if 
this is a historic building, and one of the things we've learned in this process too is that the the water supplies that go to most older buildings are not sufficient for sprinklers. So our water main does not support that. That is a a piece of this project where we have to bring a new water main to the building that uh, right now has an indefinite uh, timeline and and also is is something that is we know it's very expensive, but we don't yet know how much that costs. Um, last word, Cassandra Holden. What, what, what should listeners know? What should listeners do other than what you just mentioned? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, please stay connected with us through email and social media. We will be posting updates, you know, as, as we know more. Um, you know, we really appreciate um, everybody sticking with us. Um, I would also encourage, like, people to keep it positive. Like, I want all of that energy focused towards the things that can really help us in the future. We're going to need to raise a lot of money. You know, we're going to need to do this work to bring the building up to code, and we need everybody to do that. That's supporting us as an organization. That's supporting our pre- presenters who, you know, are going to have to move their shows, you know, but really focusing on the future and how we get through this um, is, is where I'd like is where I'd like people to be. Like, yeah. Well, I, I can only say I'm a big fan of Bombix. Thank uh, you. The shows that I've seen there have been really incredible it is not only a performing arts venue for an eclectic group of performers uh, really interesting ones it also uh, the focus on social justice the focus on uh, historic contributions that were made in that remarkable pine tree behind yeah. the building um, is something everyone should know about i i really hope that the city of northampton finds a way to resolve this bill I know we're I know we're short on time, but there's something that just keeps gnawing at me here. The city has been involved in the uh, creation of this venue from the beginning, since before the beginning. And what I don't understand is how all of a sudden it came to someone's attention that there wasn't a sprinkler system. I mean, the city had to know there wasn't a sprinkler system. How did this get to this point where they've encouraged you and encouraged you and encouraged you and then Boom. What happened? That part has been mysterious for us as well. You know, last September, we welcomed a delegation from the state that included, you know, uh, Michael Bobbitt from the Mass Cultural Council, our local and regional elected officials. Like, you know, we, you know, we have been this outpost of hope and creative joy in the region. And, you know, this sudden about face is, you know, really alarming and hurtful. Well, one more time, I just want to say, I think the answer there lies in the officials that are making this decision. I just want to point out, I did have a conversation. I did invite the fire chief to come. And, and I followed up, us, and, and I did speak with the uh, uh, mayor's office, and they've indicated they will send someone to the show soon. We will stay on this uh, story because it's a really important one. Thank you, Kyle Homestead. Thank you, Cassandra Holton. And I, we do, we all hope this ends happily because right now it's, uh, it's sad. It is. Thanks for having us back, and we hope next time we'll have some happy news. We hope so, too. We're going to be coming right back with social activists and our own Jeff Napolitano and talk to him about, well, him. We'll be right back with Jeff right after this. Just
listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One person is dead after being struck by a train in Westfield last night. Westfield police were investigating near the train tracks around the areas of Elm and Pocasic Street in downtown Westfield around 9 p.m. Several streets were closed during the investigation. Police have confirmed that a pedestrian was killed after she was hit by the train, but have not identified the victim. Northampton officials are looking for a new vendor to run Valley Bike after the main provider defaulted on its contract. Carolyn Mish, Northampton's Director of Planning and Sustainability, says they are planning to have a competitive process to select a partner with more financial stability after the former provider, Bewigan Technologies of Canada, initiated bankruptcy proceedings. The regional bike share program has stations throughout the Pioneer Valley, which will most likely remain grounded through next spring unless a short-term vendor can be found. The East Hampton School Committee will choose two new members by the end of the month. Nine residents have applied for the position. The new members will assist in making the final decision on interim superintendent and will be chosen during a May 31st meeting at 6 p.m. using sequential ranked choice voting. The meet and greet series for the superintendent position wrapped up last night and interviews will take place June 3rd through the 5th with a decision possible on June 12th. The new Greenfield Skate Park is opening today, just in time for Memorial Day weekend. Greenfield Recreation Department says today will be a soft opening, with construction continuing for the next few weeks. A formal grand opening is scheduled for Wednesday, June 21st, on National Go Skateboarding Day. Plenty of sunshine today, a light breeze and a high of 70 to 74. Mostly clear this evening with evening temperatures in the 60s and 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Cool start tomorrow, but a mostly sunny and mild day, a high of 76 to 80. Mostly sunny and low 80s on Sunday and Monday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Netflix has begun its long-threatened crackdown on account sharing. The company has begun sending out emails to members who share Netflix accounts with friends and family who don't live at the same address. If they want to keep them on the account, it will cost extra. The Consumer Affairs Trend Micro Threat Alert shows Father's Day shopping scams are surging. From May 15th to May 22nd, Trend Micro's research team found more than 30,000 Father's Day-related shopping scams in the U.S., most promised discounts on fake shopping websites. Automakers issue recall notices nearly every day, but it's up to owners to make the repairs. According to Carfax, more than 2.5 million vehicles that have received Do Not Drive or Park Outside Safety recall notices had not been repaired as of May 1st. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com.
You're listening to The Good Work with Jeff Napolitano, part of Talk the Talk here on WHMP. And The Good Work has been part of Talk the Talk. And before that, the afternoon buzz. And before that, the Bill Newman Show. Jeff Napolitano, you have been um, at the heart of uh, social activism in this region, which is so identified uh, as a bit of uh, activism and social justice. And um, because you have your priorities all wrong and you're more concerned about your family and work, uh-huh. you're going to leave Talk to Talk as our uh, uh, periodic host um, of so many local activists doing so many wonderful things. So um, before we even ask a question, I just want to thank you so much for the contributions you've made to this show and to this community. And and then I just want to ask you, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history in this region as being at the heart of activism and justice? Oh, my history? Okay. Well, that's, um, that's mostly a... Uh, the result of being distracted when I when I came to Western Massachusetts to attend UMass Amherst, and um, back in 2003, um, I started um, resuming my college degree, and and I was distracted from being on the honor roll at UMass Amherst and having my 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 future uh, medical career. Um, put on hold because I, there was this whole Iraq war thing going on. And so I, um, after, after beginning a, a, a promising academic career in biochemistry and molecular biology, I, I, I was wrapped up with the rallies and the, the, the protests against the Iraq war. It was, um, I think in the summer of 2003 or 2004 that I first met in a room on, in a small office in Hadley, Joe Comerford, who was then the director of the American Friends Service Committee and was organizing I think, 30 buses to New York City. And uh, that was sort of the, the beginning of my troublemaking in Western Massachusetts. Good trouble. So you became involved with AFSC, yep. Western Mass AFSC. As a uh, volunteer, yeah. And that was being run by Joe Comerford at the time. She was the successor to Francis Crow. Yep. And then what? Uh, and then um, I was convinced after doing a bunch of student activism, and I met a lot of people in the community actually through the activism at UMass Amherst, um, particularly around when Andrew Card, who nobody will remember, but but older folks was the was what the a great demonstration right. during the graduation. Yes, yeah. he was the the chief of staff for George W. Bush, who, um, lest anybody forget, was de- definitely in one of the top five worst presidents in the United States. Even though you know he has he shares snacks with Michelle Obama nowadays. Um, anyway, his chief of staff was at uh, at UMass, and he received a, a honorary degree and the community and the students at UMass sort of came together to protest and, um, you know, give, give this man the, the, um, the metaphorical finger. I basically. still have the sign in my basement, discard. Yeah, <laughs> discard, yeah. Um, and so uh, after, after I, I managed to eke out my degree, I um, well, went into labor studies, but Unfortunately, I also, or not fortunately, unfortunately, but I, I had a, a child at the same time that I went into um, 
to graduate school, and um, after a year and a half, uh, I I left UMass to take care of my kid, and um, uh, about a year uh, after that, I had this opportunity to apply for the American Friends Service Committee director. Joe Cumberford had stepped down, and they were looking for somebody, and I was like, oh, I remember that organization. That was great. And the definitely one of the more pivotal parts of my life was accepting uh, to become the director of uh, AFSC in, in Western Mass. And as part of that, um, you promoted, you sponsored, you created... You chronicled, you advertised what was going on in progressive circles and progressive action. Yep. Um, can you talk about that and what that meant to you and what you think it meant to the community? Well, the first thing was that I was following in the footsteps of Joe Comerford, who's, you know, I should say Senator Comerford, whose um, footsteps were pretty big to begin with, but even, as you mentioned, Bill, before that, Francis Crow had been the, the founder and the director of the AFSC office for decades, and um, that was, um, that allowed me to basically do what I was doing as a, you know, I was struggling to do as like a side hobby, you know, this activism, and I was able to do it as a job and get paid for it, and um, I did that for almost a decade, and uh, that was... It was often stressful, and um, you know, it's it's uh, being an activist means confronting really miserable parts of our society and then trying to address them. Um, but it was always an honor to actually be paid to do this work to to try to make the world a better place. Um, and so that involved things like the annual Martin Luther King celebration, the annual uh, Hiroshima Nagasaki remembrance uh, that. That um, that take, took place in Northampton, and now it takes place in East Hampton, and um, doing a whole bunch of uh, economic justice, like um, helping to start Springfield No One Leaves in Springfield, the anti-eviction coalition, and lots of different work, and touching upon lots of different activists and great people across Western Massachusetts who were and are trying to make the world a better place. When we first met, you told me you consider yourself a member of the resistance, and in fact, you used the term resistance. Could you talk about that? Um, I, that was probably before Trump, actually. Um, but um, Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was well before Trump. Well, you know, there's, there's this story that Harry Belafonte told about um, Martin Luther King uh, in, like, his final days, um, shortly before he was assassinated, about him being worried about the uh, he's integrate you know he used the phrase that he was he was worried that he was concerned that he was integrating uh, his people into a burning house and Harry Belafonte was like oh that's that's some worrisome stuff right there so you know what what what, what are we to do you know what what's what's the issue and King said well you know he he was worried that doing all this work to make the the country a better place might in effect be futile just because the foundations of the country were just so corrupt and so um, irreparable morally. Um, and, and when Belafonte asked him, well, what, what should we do? Um, King said, well, you know, this is, the United States might be a burning house. If it's a burning house, then we're to be the firefighters then. And so um, 
part of being a firefighter in that respect, I think, is being a resistance to sort of the dominant culture, uh, a resistance to the oppressive forces in, in this country and in the world, um, which are, which is no small thing. And so that's, uh, you know, that's what resistance meant to me. We are talking with Jeff Napolitano, who has been to so much of his adult life trying to make this city, this region, this commonwealth, this country, a fairer, more just place to live. We're going to continue our conversation with Jeff Napolitano right after this. Hear the bell of death planes. Hear the bell of all the guns. Hear that hide behind walls. Hear that hide behind desks. I just want you to know. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 101.5, 1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. This week's Shop Tuesday is Tavern on the Hill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Tavern on the Hill releases gift certificates for their restaurant on Mount Tom. Tavern on the Hill, barbecue done slow over native oak, brisket, ribs, and pulled pork, plus Tavern signature salmon, pumpkin tortillaki, and big deck with a view of the Berkshire foothills. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Tavern on the Hill on Mount Tom, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's Restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Jeff Napolitano, longtime activist, and I think activist community leader is, the, is more than uh, accurate as, as a description. Uh, Jeff, you were the head of the American Friends Service Committee, Western Massachusetts office, for a decade. I know that there was a history of AFSE having closed its offices across the country that eventually encompassed your office, the Western Massachusetts office. So tell us about that to the extent you can and are willing to, and what were the successors, what were the successor efforts to AFSC Western Mass? Sure. 
Uh, I mean, the the American Rent Service Committee, um, the Western Mass office that was started by uh, Francis Crow, was was under threat many times during its um, you know nearly fifty year history of that uh, of of being shut down. Just because I think the people in Philadelphia, where where AFC was headquartered, always wondered why there's this little office in the the boonies in in Western Mass that that you know causes causes so much trouble <laughs> and brings up so many debates uh, uh, and uh, and you know what what could be happening in Western Mass that's that's useful and productive. But um, I, I remember, and I I actually was the director during a couple of times that the, the office was in danger of being shut down, and we survived, and Francis had survived before. Um, me and in uh, you know waves of trying to shut down the office, but uh, finally um, the the larger organization um, had much much uh, bigger financial problems than before, and and we were uh, as you mentioned one of the offices closed in 2017 um, around the country, actually and around the world as well, uh, and. Um, Although the American Friends Service Committee still exists, yeah, it does. So it uh, it's it's definitely smaller than it used to be, and it is refocused on uh, major metropolitan areas. Um, it has uh, well, it, there's a lot to say about that. Um, but in Western Mass, uh, there was this. You know, this was 2017. Um, President Trump was uh, in office, and um, there was certainly a lot of work that people uh, felt needed to be done, and so. Uh, we launched with the help of the community uh, and a bunch of extremely generous folks uh, around here, uh, the Resistance Center for Peace and Justice, which was sort of a, con- a local continuation of the work, uh, albeit not connected to a much larger um, nonprofit. And so we continued the anti-nuclear activism. We con- continued the the migration adv- immigration adv- advocacy work. Um, we con- continued uh, a lot of the anti-militarization um, uh, work. Um, and um, I left in <laughs> in January of 2020, um, which was some interesting, fortuitous timing in, in a sense for me. Um, uh, and uh, since then, uh, TRC has been the Resistance Center has been folded into Massachusetts Peace Action, the state nonprofit. Okay, so the work went on. Yep, and, and your work goes on, and the effort goes on. Yeah. That said, I would be interested to know. What you see as the future of resistance in Western Massachusetts, and in particular, I would love your perspective, Jeff Napolitano, on whether this effort or these efforts, in your opinion, should be focused or appropriately focused on electoral politics or on something else. Uh, I think electoral politics, um, I'm not going to make any, make any broad prescriptions about you know whether the electoral realm should be uh, uh, forgotten about until a larger movement rises. There's, there's all these debates in on the left about uh, what should happen, but no, I, th- there were definite successes on the electoral side. Um, some surprising. I was actually just listening to um, a, a podcast uh, talking about uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign and the way that it unexpectedly sort of reshaped the conversation about economic justice and, and uh, many other social justice issues over the last, uh, ever since it was launched in 2015. Uh, and incidentally, uh, we, we, we actually hosted or helped host um, the Progressive Democrats of America 
when Bernie Sanders came to town, Northampton, at First Churches in 2014, and he had a conversation with John Nichols about, oh, he's considering, you know, running for for presidency in the next year for the 2016 election, and he wasn't sure whether he was going to run as a third party or as a Democrat, and it's very, I was going through some of the, the archives the other day, uh, it was very interesting uh, to, to look back at that. But um, in terms of what continues in Western Massachusetts in, um, per, you know, resistance in Western Massachusetts, um, I think organizations like Springfield No One Leaves, who uh, the executive director I've interviewed a couple of times here on the show, and um, organizations like those that are really putting in the grassroots effort are, are worthy of, of continuing that legacy. Um, earlier, Dan Torres and I were talking, knowing that you are not going to be continuing your Good work uh, segment here. And Dan, you, you, you I just have... wanted to compliment you on all the work you've done. I mean, I, I, I transferred back uh, from school in Boston to UMass, and I heard about you in the mid-2000s leading that fight, and I probably joined a lot of some of the protests against the Iraq War, but you were, in fact, a big name leading that and organizing that, and that couldn't have been easy. Um, and I've really always enjoyed your conversations here on the radio. Um, even if sometimes I don't exactly agree with you, but you always say something I think that is very intelligent, smart, and the best part is sometimes you say something that Buzz and uh, Bill don't necessarily agree with, and I love the faces that they <laughs> that they then express. Um, but it's always a challenge, you know. You always have a keen sense of justice and fighting the just cause. So I just wanted to say thank you. Sure, I, I think. That the higher institu- higher education institutes of higher education like UMass shouldn't be underestimated for you know their impact on shaping the culture and shaping the debate. Um, I think that's part of the reason why folks like Ron DeSantis are going after institutions of higher education in Florida, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that it should be overestimated that like I don't think the revolution is going to come from college campuses, but I do think that that is a space where young people can think and imagine a different world than what we live in. I just want to point out, and maybe Bill has something to point out as well, that you, what you've, you've been alerting people to rallies, demonstrations, important actions that have been going on um, for all this time that, that you and Bill were just describing. You also have used the radio to highlight the good work that's being done by so many different people in this region, important work that makes us a better people. Bill? Yeah, I, I think that one aspect of... Jeff Napolitano's work uh, with AFSC, with the Resistance Center, that we have not mentioned, is the way in which he and those groups integrated themselves and integrated others into a larger effort. And when there was a need for a voice, when there was a need for resources, when there was a need for people, for organizing, for putting groups together, Jeff was there. And Jeff did that work. And I think that all of us are in your debt for that, Jeff. Well, thank you, and um, and I, I appreciate the, all the, the airtime you've allowed me to steal for my uh, my political purposes over here. <laughs> I hope I'm, I'm glad it was somewhat useful. I think your political purposes is to make us all bigger and better, and uh, your contribution, I'm sure, is not going to end here, but I know as far as everyone here in Talk to Talk, we're so grateful for what you contributed to uh, our show and to our listeners' lives. And Jeff we expect to have you back from time to time, Jeff, because we know where to find you. You're not sure. off the hook yet. <laughs> we yeah. and the FBI know where to find you. <laughs> and CIA. 
<laughs> on that note, thank you for joining us on Talk to Talk this week. Everybody have a great uh, long weekend. Jeff Napolitano, the very best. You continue to walk the walk, which we enjoy so much. Thank you so much. Thanks. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. Have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's a